Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, it's time to wake up with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. Jeremy, we have some special guests with us today. You absolutely do. It's an honor. I might be speechless at some parts of this, and I know people listening might find that interesting, but I have with us today two icons within the AANA profession. We have two AANA past presidents. We have Sandra Marie Ouellette and Nancy Bruton Marie, and they have both served as AANA presidents before, and both of them taught me whenever I was in anesthesia school, and Sandy was my program director. So the tables are turned just a little bit right now, and I'm pretty nervous about this today, Jeremy. Well, I think it's amazing. I always learn stuff from both of these ladies. I've known them for, for many years as well, so I'm excited to hear the, the stuff that they have to offer us today. Well, you know, I guess the best way to handle this is just to go ahead and give them the floor because I'm sure that they can give us amazing historical lessons about how the CRNA profession has gotten to where it is today. So how about, Sandy, why don't you talk to us just a little bit about when you were AANA president and some of the big issues that you faced, and I'm sure that these are things that have uh, shaped our profession as we see it today. Sharon, thank you, and uh, Jeremy, and thank you uh, for having me on today. You know, I was ANA president almost 30 years ago. It'll be 30 years uh, next year, and there were a lot of issues, as there always will be in this particular role, but the one that stands out the most was direct reimbursement for CRNAs. Now, when I became president in 1988-1989, the reimbursement issue had been finalized in terms of the legislation. Some of you may recall that Medicare was a sleeping giant for many, many years, from 1965 until the early 1980s. But in the early 1980s, the government realized they could not continue to pay for Medicare in the way that it had been paid for in the past. So some of you will remember that they developed what they called a prospective payment system and diagnosis-related groups. That was in about 1983. I was a young member of the ANA board at that time. But what it did, it was a clear disincentive for hospitals or physicians to employ nurse anesthetists. And that was the largest employer of nurse anesthetists at the time and probably still is. Because we woke up overnight and we were a cost center, not a revenue producing center that we had always has been before. So the board of directors was faced with a very difficult problem is what type of action should we take to protect all of our practice settings. Half of our members were employed by hospitals, half by, almost half by physician groups, and then you had the independent practitioners uh, at that. And, you know, as a board member young at the time, I remember this discussion vividly. 
And the only way that we could protect all was to go for direct reimbursement under Part B Medicare. And that was the payment pool that only physicians were in. And of course, our counterpart would be the, the anesthesiologist. And so from the very beginning, they were not too happy about this particular direction. So, but the games began and it started. Very successful in getting the legislation and it was passed and signed into law by President Reagan in 1986. And um, so we had traveled that journey and uh, felt that we had done a good job. And by the way, that was led by Peggy McFadden, my husband Dick Willette, two boards of directors, and a very, very engaged membership, as well as our consultants, Dick Verville and Deb Hardy. I think Nancy wants to say something, and, and after that I want to say what happened after, because this was when I became president. Well, I just wanted to add that uh, at the time that the issue came up with Medicare, I had not been a CRNA quite 10 years. And just to emphasize how important this was, what happened in the way we talked about it at that time was that we became unbundled from Part A Medicare. And Part A Medicare at that time was where we were, hospitals were being reimbursed for our services. And by unbundling us, there was no way to get paid under Medicare for CRNAs. So we were facing, if you really want to look at it that way, sort of extinction if we could not find a way to be paid. And so this was when I guess I began to get a little more excited about AANA because I went home and started investigating other careers and realized that um, I was going to be making about one-third what I was making, and maybe I just better pay attention to this. But I, I really want people who are listening to this to really understand we were not going to have a way of being paid by Medicare. So it was in a, a very, very critical situation, and I think that was one of the things that made CRNAs across the country come together. And we did come together. I mean, we were all over the hill and it wasn't just a few people it was a lot of people on the hill yeah i agree with that nancy and um and so we won the ribbon we um successfully legislated and what was said at the time by the executive director of, of the american nurses association it was not only a great victory for crnas but it was the greatest victory ever for all of nursing to obtain that uh, direct reimbursement. We were the first APRNs to get direct reimbursement under That's this correct. leadership, we were the correct? First, yeah, yes. we were the first special, we were the first nurses ever to step out beyond general duty nursing as a recognition as CRNAs. Okay, so now we think, boy, I can take a breath because I'm gonna be president in a year or two and this is all behind me and I feel real good about that. Little did I know the hardest part was yet to come because now the legislation goes to a federal regulatory body. At that time, it was the Healthcare Financing Administration, or HICFA, which would be CMS today. And by then, the anesthesiologist had gotten in touch with them, and they were lobbying hard that we would be paid an hourly fee, and they would continue to be paid under a relative value guide, uh, time units, base units, and modifiers. We could not stand for that because to be competitive, and they're our only competitors, 
we have to be in the same pool under the same way. And that was not the intent of the legislation. So we fought real hard through that, through Jan Menino's presidency and into mine. And it was uh, settled on our behalf in January of 1989 as I was serving as president. So that was a great day. Now, for everything we do, there is a unintended consequence. And the unintended consequence for this was that between 1982 and 1989, 60 nurse anesthesia programs closed in the United States and no more open. We went from the point of graduating 1,200 students a year to under 600 students a year. And it all had to do with direct reimbursement. It was a way that they could eliminate this profession. So my husband now, he was not my husband then, uh, Richard Willett followed me a second time as president in 1990, and his only project was to correct this. We were dying on the vine. It had to be corrected. So he appointed a national commission on nurse anesthesia education and asked that I chair it. It was a multidisciplinary commission consisting of people of uh, nurse anesthetists. We had an anesthesiologist, hospital administrators, economists, academicians, a lot of different people. And we batted this around, and, and what, what can we do? And we came up with the idea that we don't need 140 nurse anesthesia programs again as we had in 1982. We need around 100 programs strongly based in academic medical centers but the key is we need multiple, multiple, multiple clinical sites because that then makes it very hard to attack. You can close a program, but when a program has contracts with 15 clinical sites out in the hospital community, it becomes a much harder target to hit. So we started with that. The board of directors in this allotted $3 million over a three-year period between 1990 and 1994. Temporary help was hired in the, uh, in the ANA office. We came up with all sorts of incentives for faculty. And the good news is now that we're graduating about 2,200 students a year, and there are probably about 1,800, 1,900 clinical sites to accompany our 120 programs. And so it saved the day. Plus, it gave the students the most varied educational experience they could have ever received. They learned very quickly when they went out to the community, you could uh, actually complete a uh, cholecystectomy in less than four hours, which uh, they did not know that in the uh, academic medical center. So it gave them the real world experience. Those two things, I feel, were the most dangerous threats to this profession that this profession has ever seen. And I will say uh, to all of you that are listening to this, it never ends. Reimbursement is on the table now, and there will be other challenges. And unless we come together as a community of CRNAs, be active and engaged, we'll lose this battle. And everything you have today can be gone tomorrow. It's not guaranteed. So keep up, and when you're board members ask you to do something is for a reason and I would uh, really highly encourage you to do that and I'll turn it over to my colleague Nancy. I was president as of last year 20 years ago. Well I think a lot of things happened during your presidential year but it really is a continuum. It, it's not just it's unusual for something to happen and in a year and end in a year. 
So there were several things that happened during the time that I was on the in on the board. One of them is kind of a continuum of what Sandy has been saying, because at the time that I came on the board, the anesthesia care team was being paid 120% for every case, where if you or I were just doing our one case, or an anesthesiologist was just doing one case, that was just 100%. And so it was coming up again to be talked about, and this 120% was on the table. And we supported everyone being paid 100%, instead of the anesthesia care team being able to supervise up to four rooms and get 120% for each of those rooms. That happened so that the anesthesia care team, everyone makes 100% of the case, including a CRNA who's doing their case by themselves. And if it's an anesthesiologist and a CRNA, the pay is split. That did cause some major repercussions in the anesthesia care team. It created a fair amount of angst among the anesthesiologist and, again, a lot of anger from the ASA to the AANA. So, as Sandy said, it really doesn't end. As far as why I, I know one of the questions that you get asked sometimes is, why did you become president of the AANA? I have to tell you that wasn't my goal. I went to my first AANA meeting in uh, 1978, I think it was, in Detroit. And I saw Michael Booth as chairman of the Council on Accred, and that is what I wanted to be. Sandy wanted to be president. I wanted to be the Council on Accreditation Chair. Uh, we were not rivaling each other for positions. And I became chair of the Council on Accred, and a lot of things happened during those years. We moved the programs to the master's degree. We revised the standards and guidelines. We had to go before the Department of Education, as well as uh, the accrediting bodies, our accrediting bodies, accrediting bodies. So I got lots of experience testifying before government committees, as well as other types of regulating committees. And I learned about regulation of educational bodies. So, you know, those are some of the things that I encourage people to do and I don't know everybody just said well you know when you run for president and when you run for president and and so then I ran for president but it wasn't until after I was president of the NCANA and one of the things that kept bugging the AANA dealt with supervision and part A Medicare. Medicare is not simple by any means and it's hard sometimes to visualize the many parts of Medicare. But the two major parts of Medicare that impact CRNAs are going to be Medicare Part A and Medicare Part B. Part A is where hospitals get their money, not providers. Part B is where providers get their money. But unfortunately, in somehow in Part A, when we went through everything about getting reimbursement, it got left in Part A that for hospitals to get their money, CRNAs had to be supervised by a physician. Not now, an anesthesiologist. Not an anesthesiologist, specifically a physician. So like in a small hospital, it could be the chairman of the surgery department. It didn't mean that they had to be in the room with you or even in the operating room with you 
there had to be a named, quote, supervisor. Well, this began to cause trouble because at the time that I was on the board, there was a glut of anesthesia residents, and they were having trouble finding jobs. And what was happening was these newly graduated residents were going into rural areas, small, small hospitals that were getting pass-through money. And you had to meet a special qualification of being small mm -hmm. to get pass-through money. But one of the issues with pass-through money was you cannot have an anesthesiologist. So they were coming in and convincing obstetricians that their responsibility was greater, which was increasing their culpability if something happened with the CRNA giving anesthesia. And this was frightening the obstetricians because they already had a lot of things that they could be liable for and their malpractice insurance was not cheap. And so the new person would come in, physician would come in, and move the CRNA totally out of the hospital because these hospitals couldn't afford an anesthesiologist and a CRNA or two CRNAs. But once these small hospitals gave up their pass-through money, they could never get it again. And then, as the jobs opened up, these anesthesiologists moved on to bigger places, and these small rural hospitals were without any anesthesia care. And so there was a big cry to get rid of supervision and Part A Medicare. And all the years that I was on the board, we would set a legislative agenda, which I'm sure all boards do, and we would now, even now, and we would set what's one, what's two, what's three, what's four. And we would always start out with removing supervision as number one. But then we would trade out somewhere along the line to get something else from the ASA. And I kind of got tired of it. And so I had a very private retreat with my board and brought in someone who had been a part of what was HICFA at that time. And I had a strong board, and I knew I had a strong board. I didn't sit down and count it, but I think of my board members, six became presidents of AANA. Wow. So my board was strong, and I could see the potential. And so I got them to agree, as best I could get them to agree, not to change that agenda to keep that agenda. Whatever they wanted to be number one, and I didn't influence them, whatever they wanted to be number two. And quite frankly, I wanted the seven conditions of TEFRA changed, which is a whole nother story. And I wanted it number one, but supervision went number one. That was fine. That was the majority vote. And that's what we were going to support was supervision number one, doing something with the seven conditions number two, and maintaining and getting more education money number three. And that was the beginning of the supervision battle that I think finally ended in 2000-2001 when the opt-out and language came out. You know, this from a, an outsider's viewpoint here, as I listen to this, it sounds very similar to some of the things we're still going through today. It's like this has never really been dealt with. And, you know, I believe that history... You have to look back at history to see where you're going. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you might think this industry is going to look like as we move forward and maybe some of the issues? Well, you know, moving forward, again, is going to be very, very challenging. And uh, as Nancy said, uh, Tommy Thompson, who was the chair of the Healthcare Finance Administration at the time, 
that Nancy was president had signed off on the removal of supervision federally. But with the contentious election between Gore and Bush, and Clinton held it on his desk a long time, we could point fingers everywhere on that. However, that's how we ended up in, with opt-out. And, uh, and that's okay, because we did good with it. We got 17 states, and we didn't need all the states. We needed 20-plus states, mm-hmm. not all of them, uh, to opt-out. To answer you, Jeremy, we know that reimbursement has to change. Fee-for-service is probably dead as I speak. We just don't know it yet. Right. I think that I hear different models, but the one that I hear the most is bundled payment, as you mentioned today in your presentation. I think the advantage to CRNAs obviously will be dependent on who gets the payment Absolutely. Uh, for the procedure. And if the hospital receives the payment for the procedures done in their facility, I believe that CRNAs are going to be a hot commodity. And I believe that will be the thing that will come closest to removing direction and the seven conditions of payment and the four-to-one ratio of payment, and it'll be supervision. It will be more like I experienced as a young anesthetist that you may or may not have anesthesiologists in larger centers. You would expect to have them, but there won't be one for every four rooms. There may be a quarter of that amount. Right. And the rooms will be done by CRNAs. And, you know, as, as was mentioned today, anesthesia assistants won't fit into that model because they can only work with an anesthesiologist. And so I see us having a great opportunity to get rid of direction and have supervision as a model. And, you know, as a young anesthetist, and that was in 1969. Nine. In 1970, <laughs> I anesthetized small infants by myself with a third, right, with a th- with a six-month student, and I did it. I would not want to do it again. There are cases where I believe our physician colleagues are quite needed, but I also believe that a percentage, a large percentage of cases, can be done without any consultation by the CRNA. Absolutely. And uh, if we move to that we definitely are going to be the solution to the problem. The problem is going to be money and how we can take care of all these graying Americans with what money we have, and we are the solution. I really hope we see it moving in that direction. I don't know if Nancy has anything to add or not. I think we're seeing it because we're seeing some hospitals already moving in particularly areas where the criticalness of the patient is not as great to a one-to-six ratio rather than the one to four and that's super that's that's medical direction well that's supervision under part b Uh not under part a Mm -hmm. but it is certainly less money that is doled Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. because of that particular ratio i want to say one thing about the seven conditions if i can like sandy although i did not graduate as early as sandy did uh, we are the same age. <laughs> she's well, she leaned into the mic on that one, too. She's older. She's older. Graying Americans. Americans, you're worried about your future health care <laughs> as you're looking at a cardioversion coming up. <laughs> but I was before the seven conditions of TEFRA, and ever since they came into being, I have missed that type of relationship that we had with the anesthesiologist. It was collegial, it was respectful. They respected what I could do and didn't bother me with it. I knew when to ask them for help and it was just a really good workplace.
the seven conditions I think impacted not only the practice of CRNAs and them having to get used to somebody being more in their space than they had ever been before, but it has impacted our education. It's impacted our education because as a student, I started cases with just the CRNA in the room. My super and then when I was a four, six month student, I was allowed to start my own cases in my room, push my own drugs, everything, after just discussing it with the anesthesiologist. And, and that's how you learn the independent thinking that people keep saying that our students are lacking today. But when you've got somebody in your space, two or three people trying to tell you what to do, you don't get that sense of independence, and you also don't get that sense, I think, of believing in yourself, believing that you can do it. Now, r remind me, that was promulgated by the ASA. Yes. It, and, and I believe that you have told me in the past that the AANA told them, you don't want this. Mm -hmm. And I think if they had the opportunity to go back, they would take it all back. They might or they might not. But based on what you're saying, was, no. But this was directly what their way of practicing wanted to be. That was their language. It was not. It was not Hickfuss language. It was their language that got put in Part B Medicare. And the reason I bring this up is that. The year after I was president, I was chair of the last Federal Government Relations Committee. And we went to, it was HICFA then, not CMS, to HICFA. And it was just the strangest thing. We were going to talk with the powers that be from the ASA board. The powers that be of our board was there. I was there as chairman of the Government Relations Committee. And the ASA people came in with the uh, HICFA director. And they passed out their revisions to the seven conditions. And it was everything we wanted, except they would not delegate the preoperative visit. Everything else they could delegate. The induction, everything, extubation, the whole nine yards could be delegated if they chose to. So what was the rationale behind that? They could, they wouldn't delegate the preoperative I'll visit, tell you. I'll but there's there. got to be a political there, angle to this. There's a good angle to it. This came about, without trying to get into anything, about the big fraud suit in Minneapolis where they had been billing one-to-one -one taking all the money, the hospital got none when they were not medically directing one-to-one. -one. So the ASA was shaky now about these seven conditions. We argued and argued over the preoperative visit. By taking the preoperative visit away from us, they said, you can still do a preoperative visit, but we're going to have to do one. That's how they keep people from knowing about us. Don't you see? They do the preoperative visit. Before they've had Versed. Before they'd have, have Versed. And then a lot of people, you know, stop doing, a lot of CRNAs quit doing preoperative visits. The anesthesiologist was doing them. And then we saw them after they got Versed and the PACU. And then they go and tell everybody that Dr. So-and-so did their anesthesia. And they weren't going to give that up under any circumstances they were not going to give that up well this got printed in the federal registry and it said the ASA and AANA had agreed well we did in that room 
Well, this went to the ASA meeting, and these guys got jumped on at the ASA meeting, and those guys stood there and said, they never agreed to that. And so we got some revisions, but we did not get the ones that were in the federal registry. And yes, when I went back home and they asked me if they really agreed to that, I said, yes, they did. That they in fact, to they didn't just visit. agree. No, they would not take the pre-op visit out. But everything else was open. And they came in, and I've still got the copy. They came in and laid it on the table in black and white. It wasn't something we discussed other than we wanted the pre-op visit delegated to. And then once they, their colleagues jumped on them, they said they didn't do that. Controlling money. Just speaking of the, of the seven conditions of payment, of course, the ratios, they have to adhere to those ratios with those seven conditions. The ANA was opposed to any ratios at all. When this first started, the anesthesiologist wanted a one-to-one ratio. And then they wanted a one-to-two ratio when we wouldn't agree to that. And we wouldn't agree to a one-to-two either. Our position was we did not think that ratios should be regulated or designated at all. It should be up to the facility and the type of combination that you might need for a case, if any. And so after a lot of fighting over that, it finally came down to a one-to-four ratio. But they really wanted a one-to-two, one-to-one. And that's a good way then of giving them more jobs. It's an anesthesiology job security program. Mm And uh, we fought that as well. Yeah, but tell them who really did it, who really got the one to four. Do you remember? I don't. Pat Floring was president at the time, or she may not have been president, but she was on the board. She called Dr. Berth Kofer in Raleigh and asked him if he knew what the ASA wanted and that he wanted a one to two. And he was the one who got on the phone and called Jesse Helms, and it got changed to one to four. So we would have been stuck with a one-to-two if Pat had not picked up the phone and called him, and he got involved with it with a senior legislator that could at least make it better. It just shows that you always have to be at attention on the job as CRNAs. We have a very good life. We have a very good career, and it's so good. There are a lot of people that would like to take it away from us in a minute. And in addition to what we've talked about, we have to watch for anything coming down the pike in terms of teaching regulations. In the early 1980s, after not having any meetings with us for many, many years, ASA all of a sudden wanted to talk again. That was, I think, under Tom McKibben, ANA president, Mm -hmm. and we got the Thought Bridge. And they spent a lot of time talking. It took them a long time to get through what we don't want to be called. They didn't want to be called ologists, and we didn't want to be called the nurse case. And uh, then we got to the real nitty-gritty of it. They wanted us to help them with their teaching regulations so they could get 100% reimbursement for two residents in one room. And we told them, or our president, Brian Thorson, told them, we'll be happy to do that, but we also will want the same teaching regs for two students by one CRNA. They said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. We'll get ours, and then we'll help you with yours. And they were told, no, you don't understand. If we don't come in this together, we're not only not going to help you, we are going to actively fight against this, which we did. But you can see what that would have done overnight to our schools. If they could get 100% reimbursement for two residents 
per room. There wouldn't be any room for student nurse anesthetists in any academic medical center. And that's important because the young surgeons coming out, they're not coming out of our rural hospitals. They're coming out of these academic medical centers. And when they go out to their first job and they have never seen a CRNA, they're very, very nervous. That again would have been a very dangerous happening. So always be at attention. So let's back up to the reimbursement piece, the Medicare, all of that. You know, coming from a political viewpoint that there's always a backstory how this got through. Do you remember what that backstory was? Who were the players that actually pushed this to push CRNAs out of Medicare? To move us into it? Well, you went back in and made sure that we were in there. But where where was the genesis of this? Because I've always said that even with the opt-out, let's say that we got a national opt-out for every state. I think that they want to take us out at our knees by not letting us get paid. Okay, we'll let you have your opt-out, but we're not going to pay you. So, you know, I'm not too sure that that's what some of the issues are that are going on right now that there are things going on behind the scenes because if you don't get paid well as far as the being unbundled from part a medicare which is really where the fierce fighting began i'm almost but sandy disagree with that but i don't think that was meant i think they were revising medicare so you're saying that we were an unintended consequence. I think it, it began as an unintended consequence, but believe me, I don't know you, and I can't call our gun to ask her. Mm. But I don't, I've never heard anybody say that at that point in time, ASA was, you know, dealing under the table or whatever you want to say to do that. I, I really felt, I thought it was unintended, mm -hmm. but then, of course, when they saw us, going for Part B Medicare, at that point in time, only physicians were paid under Part B Medicare. And that was had to have been very frightening for them because if we got Part B Medicare and we are nurses, then I'm sure they could see following right behind us, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, et cetera, et cetera. And then there were going to be a lot more people and those people were going to be nurses dipping into the pot of money that was in Part B Medicare. Now, and as far as supervision is concerned, we went after that. But of course, they didn't want us not to have to be supervised by a physician because then that made us very independent. And if we didn't have to be supervised by a physician under Part A Medicare, then it was possible that other hospitals, not just little rural hospitals, might think, well, maybe we don't need all these doctors either. So what advice would you, the both of you, give to new CRNAs that are coming into this profession? I know Sandy has said you've always got to be at attention. Um, I know whenever the first day I sat in class as a brand new student, I thought we were just coming to pick up our books, and Sandy lectured for eight hours <laughs> that day. But she told us then, you will be a member of your professional association 
forever because your professional association will protect your practice and I have told people this a number of times and this was a quote I think from your presidential speech Sandy without the American Nurses Association there would still be nurses without the American Association of nurse anesthetists there would not be nurse anesthetists we know that we are losing the demographic from straight out of school till about five years. That is the demographic of students or newly minted CRNAs. So what advice, what are some thoughts that you would like to leave for them? Well, that's a good, nice place to, to leave this, Sharon. I think for new CRNAs, they have seen the good life. And when you walk in in the middle of a picture and this is all you've seen and this is all you know and particularly if you have not been taught the history and the struggles and you don't know how we got here it's for granted it'll never go away and I think we need to really begin by spending more time in our schools with history um, getting ready to do a research project right now with Dr. Cliff Gonzalez and we're going to survey uh, all of our program directors and see exactly how much history they are teaching and what type of history. Because I can see it being blended in with nursing history in some cases as we're parts of nursing programs. I think when members see and understand this, they will have more engagement. It is very frightening to me today when I look at some of the statistics. Uh, for example, less than 11% vote generally for the officers of ANA that will represent us in the next year. Less than 9% give to PAC at a national level. And it goes on and on. When we send out a survey, and it's sent out because your professional organization needs information, 10% you're doing good if people take the time, 10%. And so what I'll say is, if you don't take care of it, it's like everything in life worth having. If you don't take care of it, don't expect it's going to be guaranteed that it's going to be there tomorrow. And I teach the students now, even pre-admission uh, into school, they have a, a program which they give them at, at Wake Forest University, a, a School of Medicine, an introductory course to what it's going to be like. And they ask me to do the luncheon. And I just sit there and off the cuff, informally, talk to them about what we expect, you know, what the ANA is and some of our milestones, what we expect graduates of Wake Forest University to be and to do. And it's more than just giving anesthesia. It's being totally engaged in the profession. And I believe that program has always done good from our founding directors, through myself, through now Dr. Mike Riker. These students get a, a socialization into this field. And I think that's why we have had six of our graduates serve as ANA president, which is probably the, the largest number from any program, at least that I'm aware of. And I always close by a saying, and I think maybe Kathy Briggs will use that tomorrow. She asked me if she could in her presentation. We all drink from wells we did not dig. Mm -hmm. The profession I had was because of those people that went ahead of me. Ira Gunn, Agatha Hodgins, Helen Lamb, Ruth Satterfield, on and on and on. And they planted the foundation for me. I believe my profession, as I'm getting ready to, uh, to retire, totally, you know, one of these right. days. Right, we've heard this <laughs> one before, Sandy. <laughs> you know, I believe that we have really 
done some things too. We have globalized the profession through the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists. We got direct reimbursement. We took care of the problem with all of our programs closing. We moved from diploma BS to masters and started the, the ball rolling for doctoral education for all after 2025. Uh, and so I'm very proud at, at what we've done. And I ask these people, if you come here, you should be committed to dig wells for the next generation because that's what keeps us going. And the students, while they, as Linda Williams said, are only 10%, they may be a little more now, 10% of our profession, they're 100% of our future. And if we cannot instill this into them when they are students, we cannot expect much engagement when they move out. And uh, so I think we really need to do a better job of that across the station. Totally agree with that, Sandy. And you know, I think as I think of this in a, in a broader term, you know, I think that what's not done such a great job by nurse anesthesia community is teaching these students what the financial ramifications of some of these policies and decisions that are being made on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And I think just like anybody else, we all vote with our pocketbooks. I mean, that's the old mm-hmm. adage in any election. It's the economy, stupid, right? Um, but I think if we taught these students and we taught young anesthetists that the opposition probably doesn't have your best interests at heart. And this is how it could affect your pocketbook. I think if we took that angle, that it would definitely make a difference in some of these things. We might not ever get to 30%, but if we could just get to 10, 15, 20% more, it'd make a world of difference in I this agree industry. with you, Jeremy. And uh, we have a, a course, professional issues course, in professional development. I'm not quite sure what they're calling it now. But a lot of these topics can be covered, but it's at the discretion of the program director when they put the content together. Right. And uh, right now, it's interesting to me, history is required in the doctoral standards, but not in the masters. You know, in that development, and they list the things that you have to do, history's not in the masters. And, uh, you know, and they don't test to it anymore in terms of, they're, they're gonna start testing again, I think, to some of those issues. But, you know, if it's not important enough to test to, it's not important enough to teach when you have very busy curriculum. So on another tactic, and we can talk about this another day, but certainly I co-chaired the task force on on doctoral education. Certainly I'm very happy with the direction we've gone in, and that would be another whole presentation. But I would like to say at this point, we have got to be very careful in those uh, university programs that we do not dilute the generic content of providing an education that will provide a safe, competent clinician. Because when you come out of school, you're not hired for your doctorate. You don't make that salary for your doctorate. You make it for your CRNA. And I have said over and over again, we can educate people, everybody, at a PhD research level, but if they cannot maintain an airway, they're not going to have a job after Monday morning. Absolutely. It's just that simple. Right. Yeah, I've always said people don't pay you guys to put them to sleep. That's right. They pay yeah. you guys to wake them up. That's right. And that's exactly what you're saying. So, Nancy, any wise words you would like to impart to the young CRNAs? Well, I like Sandy worry about the younger generation appearing not to be as see the importance of supporting your national association. And I think in in the past, particularly with the reimbursement issue, and to me that has been really the most dangerous thing that ever happened to me 
while I was in the profession. I mean, I really did think I was going to have to go and find some other means of employment. And it was heartbreaking because I'd put so much work into it, plus scary. And one of the things that helped them then is we could walk into Washington and say, 98% of the CRNAs in this country belong to the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. We represent 98% of the CRNAs in this country. And that is power. And so if you don't see the importance of belonging to your national association, then you aren't seeing the importance of having power. And power is very, very important in a political climate. And whether you want to admit it or not, this has been a political climate, this profession that I love all of my career, and it's going to stay that way for the younger people as well. Also, it bothers me that they don't know the shoulders I stood on. They don't know those people. They don't know the John Guards, the Ira Guns, the Agatha Hodgins. They don't know the people that were my mentors whose shoulders I stood on. And therefore, if they don't know the people now whose shoulders they should be standing on, how are they going to be shoulders for someone else to stand on? So it's a, like you build on yourself, but you build on it because you know where you've been. And if you can't understand where you've been, you can't know where you're going. You may think you do, but you don't. And I will say one thing that I did the whole time I was on the board, and I felt like I knew a lot because I had history in anesthesia school and Helen Voss who was my program director and Sandy's program director I mean she drilled it into you and she also didn't give you much of a choice about being a member of the AANA because she would tell us that there was a district meeting that night and she didn't ask us if we wanted to come she said my car will be in the parking lot <laughs> and so and she had a big car <laughs> But I always, if I didn't, I would go to John Guard and I'd say, okay, this is the problem. How did we get here? Now, this is what I know about it, John. This is what I know about it from what people have told me from history. But I've got to know how we got here or I can't make a decision. I would do the same thing with Sandy. I'd do the same thing with Pat Fleming, with Ira Gunn. But if you don't know where you've been, and how you got to where you are, you can't make good decisions. And, you know, I just feel that this is the greatest career in the entire world, bar none. It's always something to learn, always something new to do. And I have a real low level of boredom. And I just can't see not being excited about continuing it. Well, with those wise words, we've gotten a lot of content here, and I think we're going to have to have them back, Jeremy. What Absolutely. do you think about that? But clearly, I have stood on both of your shoulders. I 
also know what you're talking about about it not being a choice because I don't believe either of you would have allowed me a choice not to be a member of the AANA and I always thought if I ever let my membership drop I just thought that maybe there was some alarm that went off in Sandy's head and she would call <laughs> me immediately so it was not an option but I do believe that you instilled in your students the value of the association and you both were role models for us to follow and so I want to tell you both I appreciate that so absolutely and it's obviously a pleasure to be in the room with all three of you past a and a presidents and you know I've learned so much from all three of you over the years as well so I thank you guys for being here today and I would love to have you back if you okay, would uh, well, entertain that Absolutely. Well, you shouldn't ask Sandy and I just to come and talk for an hour. <laughs> well, we asked you to talk for 20 minutes, and so now we have you, an hour. You so knew that we wouldn't do that's that. That's right. So we, we appreciate it. And I do want to revisit the topic about the DMP task force because you will get a lot of questions about that when you go across the country. So we look forward to that. So I guess that will be all that we have today. So this is Sharon Pierce signing off. And Jeremy Stanley. So thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. Coming up on a future episode of Beyond the Mask. This is Julia Harris. I'd love to talk to you about opioid-free anesthesia, and I'm looking forward to sharing this information with you.